The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Hi, and welcome to the American Vision. I'm Joel McDermott, bringing you today a special interview that I've been waiting for a long time to do with a friend of mine and author, Mr. Brent Allen Winters. Brent is a practicing attorney, very seasoned, and also a scholar and a gentleman. And he's written this very, very fine book, which I highly recommend, The Excellence of the Common Law. When I first read this book, it immediately jumped out to me that he and I were greatly on the same page particularly on the idea that there are only two types of law in society, and that is God's law and a fallen man's law. And based upon those, there are two legal systems, and you can trace them all through history. You can see them active in the founding of, the, uh, of our, our nation, America, and you can also see them operative still in governmental systems today in different ways. Although we widely recognize that we have lost many of our rights and liberties, that there have been many encroachments from humanism and various other uh, humanistic isms out there. Uh, nevertheless, we still see at the root of it all our English and, and American common law system. This book outlines what that system is, what it was and is, better than just about anything I've seen, with special attention on what is due process, how does it operate, how does it affect every area of life, how is it not just this technical thing that's up in the court realm somewhere, but it's actually something that's very practical that affects every area of our lives and how we live our lives, how we relate to each other, how we limit the powers of government and of corrupt fallen man in our society, and many, many other things. And as I said, it traces those ideas through history to show you uh, what, why our system is unique, why it is derived from biblical law and how we got there. I highly recommend this book, among the few books that I say is a must read for most Christians. Now this is a big, fat, daunting looking book, and you'll hear that come up in this uh, first interview. And it's very interesting to me how Brent answers that. It's really only certain academics and lawyers themselves who are kind of afraid of this book. It's actually uh, very friendly to common folk. Uh, actually, what is God's law for, after all? It's very simple. It's very fundamental. We can all understand it. And this book is written in the very same way. So that even homeschool families, he says, have read this to their children and gone through the entire book and understood it just fine. And... I think it's therefore not only filled with information we all need to grasp and understand, which is very rarely understood today, uh, but it's able to be accessed by all of us. 
So I highly recommend this book. We carry it in our store at American Vision. And, and I uh, encourage you highly to go there and check it out and get yourself a copy. Um, I hope you enjoy this interview. Just before we start, let me say, I want to give a big thank you to uh, Ken Tillman, who donated his studio and his time and his skills in putting this together in Charleston, Illinois. So thank you, Ken, and thank you to all of you who watch and enjoy this. And again, go to our store and check out The Excellence of the Common Law. And I'll be back at the end of this interview with a few more words. So hi, this is Joel McDermott with The American Vision, and I've been waiting a long time to do these series of interviews with Mr. Brent Allen Winters. And Brent is a, a seasoned common law lawyer, and when you hear he's a lawyer these days, that means one thing to the modern mind, but I'm telling you, you're in, you're in for a treat. This is something entirely different. It's tied to biblical law, to American history in a way you've probably never thought of before. And I'd like to introduce this talk a little bit, Brent, by reading a section from the Declaration of Independence. And when people hear about the Declaration of Independence, they think, oh, this is American history. And this section right here, when I understood what it was talking about, this goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. This goes back to Nimrod, Babylon. These issues follow scripture all the way through all of history up until today and the tyrannies we're facing today. So I just want to read this and we'll, we'll go from that point. Uh, of course, the Declaration of Independence is a, in my view, is a covenant document. And they're telling the King of England, look, we had a covenant or a contract with you and you've broken it. And here's why. And so they list, uh, by my count, 27 clauses in there for doing this and he did this and he did that and he did this and he quartered troops here and he did all that, right? And then you get down to this one. Yes. And it says, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. And that's a lot to think about. I have discovered that to be true because of a conversation we had a few years back about the Quebec Act. Yes, uh, absolutely. And in the, the historical context is the Quebec Act in which the King of England was allowing for the first time in colonial North America there to be a different type of legal procedure done than was being done in what we call the common law tradition. I would even say a lack of procedure, whereas our common law is due process this and process-oriented the law of the city, the civil law, the canon law of the Church of Rome, the law of, that was Parliament said Quebec could have yes. because of the French Roman population there, it is result-oriented. We must, whatever we do in our tribunals, we must achieve the, the will that is the government or the powers that be have commanded. And then beyond that, extended the boundary of Quebec clean down from above the Great Lakes to the Ohio River, taking in all of what is now Wisconsin, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois. And then that helped me understand why Patrick Henry, governor of Virginia, commissioned George Rogers Clark to come back and take that territory back because 
a good share of it was part of the colony of Virginia running clean to the Mississippi River that had, the king had granted by charter. Right. No small matter, that's right. It doesn't say much, but the people that read that understood all of that. Yeah, and, but built on that historical context, there are a couple things in there. He says, abolishing the free system of English law. Yes. And, and then instituting a different system of law. And so you get, here Jefferson is talking about two different systems of law that are in fundamental conflict. Yes. And that's where I want to go. So let me introduce your book. Okay. Uh, Brent is the author of this and several other books we're going to talk about uh, today in a series of interviews. Uh, this is a big, as you can tell, thick book. What do we got here, Brent? 700, no, no, nine. 958 <laughs> pages. 958 pages. Excellence of the common law. And that's a, a phrase that's used in various ways. We're going to talk about it at length here today. But I would simply say that the way he's talking about common law here in the English tradition and the early American tradition is biblical law, or very, very close to it. An attempt to be consonant with it. Exactly. To use a word that, well, consonant's a good word. Yeah. And so this book goes through the early history. It lays out what common law is and what is that other rival system Jefferson was talking about, civil law. Yes. And then it goes into the history of the development of both, and then it gives you a lot of cases of how they're different. Yes. Uh, and there's just packed with information and history, just eye-opening on almost every page. A subject that one time was well known and taught in all of our law schools by requirement, comparative law. Because there are only fundamentally two traditions of religion, law, and government among the race of Adam and never have been any more than two. There are many different labels, Yes. but they're really fundamentally only two. That is the law of the land, and the law of the city. And the law of the land, uh, that phrase lifted from Magna Carta, was one of the ways that uh, those that went before us uh, named or talked about what we call today our common law. Absolutely. And that I said that goes back to Adam and Eve, actually Cain and Abel. Well, yeah. And because and what does Cain do the moment he suffers the guilt of having murdered his brother? Uh, God banishes him. What does he go to do? He builds cities. He builds yeah. the first city, yeah. and there's there's a whole history in that. So and the you, law of the city can't function without cities, hmm. and there've been there's been a lot written about that, but and history bears that out. Which is another thing. You've got quite a bibliography in there. Of yes, I think one of the books there in the bibliography is called The City. Okay. It's an analysis of the law of the city and the necessity of cities. And since Babylon, Babylon has, has spawned cities yeah. throughout the world, and uh, that's the foundation of the law of the city. And then, of course, in the end, in the book called Revelation of the Revel Revel Revelator, John, he, he points out there will be no more cities. Yeah. The Lord will... This, this city is There will be one city, yeah. yeah, one holy city, but all the cities of the earth will be destroyed. Uh, that's in sync with the theme of the law of the land versus the law of the city and the covenant, the ultimate covenant of God, which has to do with land. Yeah. Now, I don't want people to get the idea that this is about two country boys that don't like the city. And <laughs> so we've got this vendetta. I've been, yeah, I've but, been accused of that. But this is about, well, we, and we are fundamentally. Yes. Uh, I, we both grew up here. This is in southern Indiana and southern Illinois. We both grew up yeah. in this area. But... Uh, this is ultimately we're talking about two rival legal systems, one a law of the city, one of the law of the land, and it's not city versus land as much as it is the two different types of jurisprudence and how they go about things. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit what is the difference between common law 
Or you can tell me what is the nature of common law and why is it different from the nature of civil law? Well, in the book, I cataloged about 30 major differences. Yeah. Um, and of course, then throughout, I try to contrast and compare because our common law, and there have been many common lawyers through the centuries that have said this, our common law is unknown until there's adversity. Mm -hmm. because it is fundamentally an adversarial system. In other words, we believe through the centuries we have accepted through experience that the truth is buried in, un in unrighteousness, as Paul says, Romans chapter 1, mm -hmm. and the only way to get it out is if there's a sharpened fight where people have a real case in controversy where there is really, as our as common lawyers have said, there's a bloody plaintiff. Mm. If there's no bloody plaintiff, our courts in America don't even have jurisdiction. In other words, you can't go to a court, and this is one of the major differences between the law of the land and the law of the city. You can't go into court in America and say, you know, Judge, I was wondering how the court would rule if this happened. Mm -hmm. He won't take jurisdiction. And our Constitution of the United States, which of course primarily and first and foremost applies to the general government in Washington, D.C., but it is a common law government, and our Constitution is a brief of common law government. Um, it says that the federal courts only have jurisdiction over real cases and controversies. Mm. And what it means by that, that's a common law phrase in our common law tradition. It means there must be two parties that stand to lose life, liberty, property, or a combination thereof. Mm. And they, they've got dogs in the fight, and they're sharp to it. Because if you're not sharp to the fight, the truth, we believe, will not bob forth. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have, I'm involved in a case now where a fellow's been sued and the, over, it's over property rights of a church. Mm -hmm. And the, the people, the denomination that sued him have no claim to the property, no deeds, no, no color of ownership, but yet they're suing. So the argument is, you're not a, this is not a real case in controversy. You don't have standing. You're not a bloody plaintiff. You don't own the property. We're not going to let you into court. That's one of the, the arguments. Yeah. That goes on all day, every day. Well, the law of the city is not that way. The law of the city is a hypothetical law. If you could picture in your mind monks mm -hmm. in a smelly, dusty library <laughs> somewhere in Europe, that's the law of the city. It's a law of scholasticism. It's a law of logic. Is it a sense, For, they, Forget the facts. Where they try to write <laughs> down every single case or possibility of law and make a statute out of it. That's right. And it is an attempt of the powers that be, for example, for example, uh, for instance even, I should say, almost every country in the world is ruled by some form of the Code of Justinian. The Code of Justinian is the, old, is the most precise expression of the Roman Empire's law. And their emperor, Justinian, in the sixth century, got his legal beagles together and he said, I want you to write a code that covers every possible contingency that could bob forth from the relationships of human existence and I want to make sure that my will governs it. Mm. And so that's what the, that's the a fundamental of the law of the city is an attempt. And by the way, he said this. He said, I don't want any judges tampering with it. I'm appointing judges. They're not really judges. All they're oh, supposed yeah. to do is parse this code. Another whole different, a whole other difference. Yeah, uh, we're, and, so, systems. and so the judges, and this is true in France, South America, Germany, Vietnam, Russia, China, yet today the judges are appointed by the powerful party, the will of the state, and their pay and their, their jobs depends upon the favor 
of the will of the state. If you disagree with the, of the, with the, with the will of the state as a judge, you're gone. It's a civil service position. They aren't even trained yeah. as lawyers. They're trained as judges. They are not lawyers. They have no connection to defending the rights of individuals in the private sector outside of government. To quote uh, Chief Justice in Shanghai, uh, he was a Christian man. Oh, his name slips my, it's a, I don't, don't think it was a long name, but it slips my memory. But this is back in the 1930s, and he was appointed, of course, because the British had taken over. It was a common law uh, jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, he made the point that in China, which was uh, a civil law jurisdiction, law of the city, dissenting opinions are not allowed among judges. Mm -hmm. You know, we take that for granted here, that our judges write dissenting opinions. Yeah. We demand it. We want to know why they d disagree. And uh, in all of the rest of the world, they say, well, we can't let that happen because people will think that government is not a solidarity. Yeah. And they won't, tr they won't kowtow. Uh, all of the things that you can uncover, the law of the city, the law of the city is from Babylon. So it's fundamentally the same throughout the world because Babylon spread. And it's law and religion and government. Absolutely did, yes. And th those are some of the fundamental differences. I said a while ago, of course, um, well, let me start back with the idea that the government must control the judges. In our country, our Constitution is a brief of common law government. The Supreme Court has said that it is awash with the phrases and the words of our common law. You cannot understand it unless you... It's informed by our common law. It's not intended to explain things. Mm -hmm. It says jury. It doesn't explain the jury. It says dollar. It doesn't explain the dollar. <laughs> it says um, the right to remain silent. It doesn't expound it. Um, all of those words and phrases, confrontation of witnesses, for example, they're not explained because people that lived at that time in America, the population of about three million people, it was part of who they were, and they recognized at that time, and when you read the writings, you realize this, they recognized at that time that they were different than all of the rest of the world. That's mm -hmm. what makes us, and I like to say as English-speaking people, are we smarter? Are we smarter than other people? No, that's not it. Mm -hmm. God in his providence, I don't know why, certainly wasn't because of any merit we had, but in his providence, this law that is the law for all men that, by the way, other men have observed and tried to put in place. Mm -hmm. Uh, even in Rome, they had things that were very similar to this, but it didn't last. And the reason it didn't last, and I think this has been the observation of common lawyers through the centuries, the reason it didn't last was because there was no force underneath, no, no outside force mm. in the law of the city it, that an outside force, an outside standard to, to um, refer to in cases of dispute to limit the governments of men because the law of the city does not acknowledge anything beyond the governments of men. Absolutely, and that's one of the fundamental, most simple ways of seeing the difference to me is that civil law is a system of power and control that is top down from men over men. Men, and not outside of men. We are a government in America, uh, we say, have said for century, uh, a couple of centuries, of laws mm -hmm. and not men. Uh, John Knox said to Mary Queen of Scots, young, impetuous, promiscuous. John Knox said this. Yeah, yeah John Knox said it, dangerous, and he said to her, your will, madam, is no reason. Mm -hmm. And her will was no law either. That was John Knox's point. And, um, of course, that made her cry, but she was dangerous. But that's the way it is, the law of the city. Adolf Hitler could not get away with saying, I am God. Mm -hmm. 
but he had all the characteristics of God walking on earth because as the Pope of Rome, he said, I stand in the place of God and there is no meaningful appeal beyond me. Exactly. That's the law of the city. At the same time in Japan, the emperor there claimed he was God. He could get away with it there because there were too many Lutherans and Roman Catholics in Germany. <laughs> you know. But he could get away with it there and he was under the fundamentally the same, the German code, the German form of the Code of Justinian, the law of Japan. Yes. Yeah. So, if a fella could get, I like clearness, and there, it's true that the Bible presents things in pairs. Mm -hmm. There is an, a, a clear distinction between heaven and earth, between God and man, between the law of the land, between the law of the city, between the true lit religion and the true lawgiver that James speaks of in the Newer Testament, and all of the false lawgivers. There's a clear distinction. and. I think that's one of the that's helpful aspects start. of the historical part of the book is you start with Nimrod and Babylon and you work forward and before it's over with you realize all these other countries that you're talking about yeah. they're all just offshoots or or some spawn of that same system uh, of men trying to institute the same types of systems of control yes and in many cases it's it's a direct historical lineage like the Napoleonic code Napoleonic load, law, uh, law in Louisiana yes. is obviously a direct plant from the, the, the French settlers there. Yes, and, and, the, and that kind of stuff. The, the Code of France is the French form of the Code of Justinian of the Roman Empire. The Code of Bismarck is the German form. The Canon Law of the Church of Rome is the religious form, I suppose you could say. But there's a connection, too, then, between all of the, the false religions and the major ones we face in the world today, Islam, mm -hmm. Judaism, That's Romanism. There's an appendix on Islam in the book, which is great because it's not this mysterious Arabic thing out there. It's just one more variation of the civil law, the law the tied city. to a false religion. Yes. It's and Very eye-opening to me. I might ought to say it is called the civil law. Yeah. Uh, it's not that civil in no. our understanding, <laughs> but, but the word civil fundamentally in the Latin tongue refers to the city. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, urbane law, as John Wycliffe called it, the urbane law. Mm. And um, Interesting. What's the name of that fellow that wrote Moby Dick? Yeah, Melville. Me Herman Melville calls it an urbane standard. He had much to Herman Melville wrote his books about the distinction between fundamentally the law of the land and the law of the city because his father-in-law, a fellow by the name of Shaw, was Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. And uh, he was a positivist. Well, positivism is about statutes and codes and the will of the state. And so he had that in his understanding. Uh, Billy Budd, short story, and then Moby Dick also, which was about maritime law, because maritime law, admiralty mm. law, is a form of the law of the city. The law of the city is fundamentally um, martial. Yeah. And it arose, of course, in Babylon, but it arose as a militaristic law. And by the time you get to the founding of Rome, 753 B.C., uh, it was a group of people that had to defend themselves. About 300 families lived around the, what is now the city of Rome. An old city was there, Saturnia. But they had, of course, the militia yeah. to defend themselves. And that law that governed the men there became, it developed into the 12 tables of law, and then the, which... It also came from Babylon. They had this idea, and then also uh, it later on was uh, fleshed out more fully in the Code of Justinian. But it is a militaristic law. So admiralty law is a form of the law of the city, and confined to its proper jurisdiction, it's a good law. 
ships on the high seas. Martial law applied to armies on fields of battle. It's a good law. Mm -hmm. That's where it ought for to be. For that purpose. For that purpose. <laughs> and by the way, there are books in the Bible that talk about the martial or the law of the city, the martial yes, law. Yeah. Absolutely. We, uh, numbers and some in Deuteronomy. Numbers primarily. But then there's also um, uh, administrative laws, the law of the city, absolutely. the administrative codes we have today, the IRS code and all that. And that we are the most, by the way, America is the most legislated, regulated country on the face of the, of the planet. You mean it's not North Korea or the no, it's communist not. blocks? I thought we were no, the free country. No, we've been, and not, but we are a common law country. Yes. And here's the, another distinction, of course. Even though we are the most regulated country in the world, according to what I've read, I'm not, I haven't been everywhere, but it stands to reason as regulated as we are. The difference, though, with us is there is case law, what we call case law. That's, that's an unhappy term, but what it means is that the courts are guided by other decisions in the appellate hierarchy above them. Mm -hmm. That does not exist in countries of the law of the city. The, the judges are required to go to the code, to parse the sentences, to never refer back to any other decisions or any other ideas, and because the code is sacrosanct, it is the will of the state. When, mm -hmm. when this, now, um, people say that have studied the subject that the administrative law really began with the papal revolution back about the 11th century uh, when the pope, who was under the code yeah, of Justinian. Yeah, and what did he do? He found the code of Justinian. Yeah, that's it. And they yeah. started studying it again, right? Started studying it. And uh, that kind of, hey, we've got something here we can control people with. And of course, that's why Hitler liked it too and other people. Uh, many other people have done this uh, that uh, are lesser known, so I don't mention them as much, and I don't know them all either, but there are a lot of them out there. By the way, the very definition of Antichrist in the Bible, it's mentioned four times, as you know, the very definition of it is the fundamentals of the law of the city. It is the gathering of all three powers of government, legislative, executive, and judicial, into a single will. That's what it is. Antichrist meaning in place of Christ. Correct. Or instead of Christ, and therefore one person or one governmental entity trying to be prophet, priest, and king all at the same time. Yes, and that was the very point, again, of John Knox at St. Andrew's Castle. When he preached his first sermon, he expounded the, the preposition ante. That is the very definition. Ante means in the Greek tongue, in the New Testament, in place of. Right. Uh, we've, we've altered that when we brought it into English a little bit. Does it mean against? Yes, often. Yeah. But it looks like you're not against, oh, I'm not against Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. I just stand in his place and have all his authority. I'm an angel of light. I'm an angel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so it's, um, it's what the Bible talks about in many different ways and is what our common law mitigates against, separation of powers. The only man that is authorized, rightly, to gather all three powers of government into his hands is the Messiah of God. Mm prophet, priest, and king, as Isaiah puts it. And, uh, and now it's been my observation that those in the Bible that tried to do that, uh, they suffered for it. And there were some that did. And no doubt. I, yeah, well, I'm, I was challenged on that recently, and it made me stop and think about King Saul. Mm -hmm. And that's something I'd like to discuss with you sometime later. I haven't had time to do that because I know you've written a book uh, right. on the subject. On but the uh, First Samuel. Yes. And uh, King Saul lost the kingdom, and I was challenged on it on a couple of points, and I want to go back and rethink it. But clearly, now in England, for example, it's common law country. England allows two powers of government into a single will. 
For example, the prime minister, which is de facto, or even in law, the chief executive of the country as a practical matter, is also the chief of the legislative branch. Right. We don't do that in America. Mm -mm. As one fellow said, we are more English than the English by far. We're not supposed to do that we're in America. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, we're not supposed to do that. We know, we, at least we know here that's not the way it's supposed to be according to our Constitution right. scheme. Well, that's what's important about it is because the guys that wrote our declaration, in a minute, they had clear, like you're talking, I like clarity, they had clear understanding of those lines. Yes. Today we don't. When, when Obama says, I'm going to use my pen and my phone to get things done, then we, we freak out. But when, when Trump does it and somebody on our side for something we, we care about and we want done, oh, that's okay, we stay quiet. And these guys, I don't think, would have stood it either way, at least some of them. No, I, certainly they would not have. And we, we have an understanding and we've lost it. And our, the folks that drafted our fundamental documents understood it because uh, of the people that were here. Even those that didn't go to church and didn't like Christianity knew they had to adhere to it or they wouldn't be accepted anywhere. Right. Uh, like Tom Paine. You know, but, well, but, I even think men like Jefferson thought they were continuing uh, the reformation yeah. of those very principles, putting them into to more oh, no, consistent For, for any faults that he had, no, clearly, the Bible was important or he wouldn't have formed his own understanding of it and yeah. tried to even print it. We still have the copy of right, it. Extant. Right. But what I was going to point out was that even at that time, they were fully aware of the Bible and they were fully aware of what folk called out of the Reformation the depravity of man. Mm -hmm. And because they understood the depravity, or they accepted it, and they accepted it among, even about themselves, mm -hmm. and they knew that no man could be entrusted with too much power. Mm -hmm. And he becomes dangerous when he is. And uh, there is a fellow from England uh, that was an ardent Roman Catholic in the most ancient and traditional form that uh, made the statement that's become very famous, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, I would disagree with him, but I know he's, I understand his point and I agree with the result, but power never corrupted anybody. Mm -mm. Man, is, he has that imperfection in him, even if it's hidden. The power exacerbates the corruption, and that is true. So Acton made the point, but Acton went on to say in that same paragraph, he said, um, there is no doctrine as monstrous as the doctrine that says the office sanctifies the man. Yeah. He said, as power increases, the presumption against the rightness of the power holder must increase, not yeah. decrease. And no, he had it right. That's common law. Yeah. And he lived in a common law country. He understood his own government. It was how, he stood, how did he stay Roman Catholic? I I, well, he's like a lot did today, I think. This is my conclusion. He reverted back to the earliest centuries of what he believed was Romanism. He was in that ilk and that idea of Mel Gibson and his father. I see. I got is it. Is what I understand. I got but, it. Yeah. Well, that's all just amazing stuff. He blew a head gasket, Joel. Acton. He blew it. Acton blew a head gasket when the Pope pronounced and made it official ah. the, the doctrine ex cathedra. Okay. You know that the Pope cannot speak error when he speaks when his right. haunches are sitting. So that was in 1871, the, I think, at Vatican I or something like that. The date has escaped me, maybe. Yeah. But, but, our, but that upset him. And that's why he said power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, because he was incensed mm. against the Pope of Rome wow. saying that. But that is the fundamental doctrine of the law of the city. Hmm. Now, you say, there's a note I took here from, from your book last night, um, that you can witness common law's resistance to the civil law over the ages. You use this phrase, it's resistance. Yes. Say a little bit about that. Well, 
the, the and there's a lot of ways because we're let me just say, tell the readers I'm sorry to interrupt you That's all right. but we we've got Brent also wrote several smaller books here one on the militia one on the jury system and one which is one of my favorite books that I recommend to everybody don't talk to the police and this is the most pro-justice book that everyone would think was anti-police from the title but if you understand what he's saying it's absolutely fundamental to transform your thinking about American government but uh, so, so all of those books flow out of the principles that are talked about in this larger book and I think that's that's a good thing so in the, in the, the next coming segments where we continue discussing some of these issues we're going to get into those topics a little little better well, but each one of those would be kind of a, a subheading under that how does the common law resist the civil law because that's your tools right there that's a good point and uh, some people said this thing is too intimidating this big book yeah and uh, mostly lawyers by the way <laughs> and the, people the common with, people eat it up oh but the yeah lawyers, they don't want to touch I've it. had homeschool parents say they've read the whole thing to their children and they enjoyed reading it and of course the children pick up a lot you know how kids are they're sponges oh. Oh yeah. Oh, I shouldn't say kids. My mother, my grandmother forbade that. Kids are not, or children. Here <laughs> I said it again. Yeah. Children are not goats. Yeah, that's They're right. They're children. Okay, I got it, Grandma. But at any rate, these books were an attempt to package it a little smaller so it wouldn't be so intimidating, but I don't think that was so necessary. I'm glad I did it. But this does focus on particular things. The book about the militia, about the militia clauses there are four in our Constitution of the United States that are largely forgotten. I call it the sleeping, the, the sleeping militia clauses. But you were asking about and you prodded me to talk about something in the book and on resistance. Resistance. Oh yes. Well, the common law, as we call it, it's been called different things through the centuries, the Volkreich of the angels and the Saxons and the Jutes and uh, called the, the uh, the law of the land, that's what it was called during the drafting of Magna Carta. Mm -hmm. And that phrase uh, lifted from Magna Carta of 1215, and it's in Article 6 of our Constitution now. It says this Constitution is the supreme law of the land. What does that mean? That means it's due process. Yes. The supreme law of the land does not refer to just law in general. That phrase, lifted from Magna Carta, means due process. And our, our uh, Supreme Court has acknowledged that. Mm. And our common law is not a law, it's not result-oriented. It is process-oriented. Our common law says we follow due process, the most important principle, and the most important right of our Constitution of the United States is mm -hmm. due process of the Fifth Amendment. It yes. is, and what is due process? You can't even recognize it, says our Supreme Court. You don't know exactly what it is. We have fundamental ideas. Notice. The Supreme Court says this. Yes. And, now, and, a lot of our courts have said it, of oh, course, yeah, sure. because when you get into the, the throes of the, of the battle of trial before the jury, and it's taken from um, trial by battle, now we do battle by trial, mm -hmm. and it's, um, it's according to the rules, but it's still messy. Mm -hmm. It's a fight, and our common law due process is not known until the fight is engaged, until the horns have been locked until people start struggling and you know when people struggle they do and say the darndest things it's amazing and the rest of the world doesn't experience this because they don't experience the truth just popping out when you don't expect it because somebody gets mad because they're facing we have mm -hmm. oral trials mm -hmm. we and of course there's a reason for that but it's a, it's good it turned out that way at common law the trials are oral that means you face other people that means the public can come in and watch that means the newspapers can come in and watch and so that they can 
see? Are things done according to due process? Is everybody getting a fair shake? Is it a fair fight? Mm -hmm. That's a word or a phrase, a fair fight that comes from our English-speaking world. It doesn't exist in the rest of the world mm. because fair fighting is not what it's about in the other parts of the world. It's about dominating the other man. Yeah. Take, for example, in the Bible. Clearly, the Bible tells us that men are to dominate the land. And everything that we have comes and arises from the land. God gives us the land as the great gift, and he wants us to take care of it according to his terms. And we call it the law of the land for that reason. But there is a, a process that we're to follow in all of this. And if we don't follow the process, the fight is not fair, the due process is not followed, then we have violated God's standards. I was going to say, God tells man to dominate the land and to serve other men. Mm -hmm. That's what Jesus Christ, the maker of heaven and earth. It's so clear. The, yeah, to serve yeah. other men and dominate the land. The law of the land, the law of the polis, there's the word for the city from the Greek text, or from the Greek tongue. The law of the city that governs almost like a blanket, the whole world says, no, you must dominate other men and you must serve the land. And we get now today, of course, this rabid environmentalism huh. where we serve the land and then dominate the land your fellow. dominating us, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so Jesus, the quotation from Jesus, just finish it out because it dovetails with what you said. He says, he says, you are to serve other men. If, yes. if you're gonna be my disciple, yes. you're to serve each other. He says, don't be like the pagans. That's right. Who that, lorded over each other dominated. and then call themselves benefactors. Yes. You know, there's, uh, there's no better one verse picture of this whole discussion than that. That is correct. And I'm glad you quoted that because there's so many things that have filled my mind of these distinctions over the years. And I'm afraid, not that I'm fearful, but when I sit down to talk to you, I won't hit the right one. Yeah. I talk about other things, you know, that are good, but then you, two of us helps. Two men help, two minds help. That's yeah. the right one that gets that point better than anything Jesus Christ ever said. And he said that, one of the, well, one of the contexts was it was John 13 when he arose from his seat and girded himself with a towel and washed his yeah. disciples' feet. Well, anyway, we're to serve other men, but that's the grand distinction. Politics, polis, well, there's the word city. Before you, you stray yeah. off from this, I want to, uh, I want to get back to the stuff about the jury when we talk about the jury book, but okay. I want to talk about due process just a little bit more oh, to kind of round out the end of this segment. Okay. And obviously there's a due process in common law. Yes. What happens to replace that in civil law? And, and then, to, then the, the final part of this will be how does this show up in modern day? And it's going to be of course, across the board, of course. So what happens to replace, quote unquote, due process in the civil law traditions? Torture is one thing that happens. Yeah, that's where it starts. Because yeah. the difference, we have due process, we're process oriented, let the chips fall where they may. We, God says in the Bible to Israel, you follow my process, this is the sum and substance of what he's saying as a matter of law, and the judgment is mine. Be not afraid of the face of any man. You just cookbook this thing the way I tell you to cookbook it, and you'll get the process I want. Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 18, after you follow this process that he gives them, whatsoever is bound in the skies, or bound on land, shall be bound in the skies. In other words, whatever the result is, your God will ratify it if you follow the process. Yeah. 
we have things like that in our law now, distraint and distrainer. Uh, people uh, want to get rid of a renter that's uh, not paying his rent, tearing up the property. Usually in most states, there's a process that you can follow if you're the landowner, the landlord. If you follow that process precisely, the court will ratify everything that happened, and that's the end of it. But the court will look closely and say, you didn't follow the process. Process is everything. Because in the law of the city, process is nothing. We must achieve the end, the command, the result that the powerful party has given us called the state or the status, that's short for the status quo, the people mm -hmm. that don't want things to change. Yeah. We must, <laughs> we must reach the result they want. Well, then the ends justifies the means. Absolutely. At common law, Absolutely. The, in, the means, the, the, the process justifies the result. We even say, lawyers in law school learn this. They hear this phrase, good process, reliable result. No good process, no, no due process. We're not going to trust the result. The appellate courts say that in America. Mm. And I don't know that they all understand why, but we have the machinery in place in America. It's still there. Mm -hmm. We still talk that way. We still talk about it. Common law, you don't, you don't make law at common law. You find it. Yeah. And our courts still say the findings of the court. Why? Because the true law, the true principle and the application of it is the mind of God. God is eternal. His mind is eternal. His will never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, the book of Hebrews says. That doesn't talk necessarily about talking in tongues. That talks about his person and his government. And the, 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 the priesthood of Jesus Christ does not change. And his will does not change. His law does not change. So it is, the, as John Locke put it, John Locke, the man responsible for many of the phrases of our Declaration of 76, the man that Tom Jefferson said was one of the three greatest mortals that ever lived. That's right. Well, he said that. I, yeah. I, I don't, he obviously was a great I've man. been in his room where he has the portraits up of, of Locke and Bacon, and who was the other one? Was it? Uh, was I don't it remember. Newton, I think. Tom Jefferson, in his, yeah. in his house? You've been there? Yeah, I've been to Monticello. Oh, and you can tour it. it, and you can walk through his parlor, and he has the three portraits up there on the wall. That was allegedly how he had it. Well, that's that's, the, the that's three something greatest. else I can, yeah. well, I want to go there sometime. Yeah, put that too. on your check mark list <laughs> yeah. to go check that off. But John Locke said... By the way, I'll just finish that story, sorry. Okay, good. The other portrait in that room, on the other end of the room, is my favorite aspect of Jefferson's biography. It's the picture of uh, Salome with John the Baptist's head on a platter. And oh. Jefferson kept that to remind him what tyrannical government is capable of. Whoa. Yeah. Used to make a woman feel better. Uh. Yeah, well, in that, in that case. Yeah. But um, John Locke says, you know, there are the laws of nature. He's, that phrase, he was, a, he was a fan of the Scottish Enlightenment, John mm -hmm. Locke. Yeah, that's true. And that whole idea of the laws of nature and the laws of nature's God arose from the Scottish, the Reformation in Scotland. And then the Scottish Enlightenment arose out of that because the Bible was established as ultimate authority during the Reformation. And that, out of that, men begin to say, but God has revealed himself in general revelation and creation. These are, the, the way this is around us, the relationships between men and things and things and things and men and men and men and God, that's the laws of, of nature. And those, that's God's revelation. And they begin to try to, yes. to discover how the laws of nature went together. But again, it was a discovery because the law, the way things are, this is my definition of law for what it's worth. I throw it out. I think it's a good one. I'm in good company when I say this. Law is the way things are and they will not change. Mm -hmm. And the statements of God are that way, whether prophetically or in hindsight or foresight. And the laws of nature are the way things are and they will not change. The law of gravity, as Paul the Apostle says, the rain falls 
Well, there's gravity. Mm -hmm. On the justified man and the unjustified man, we all uh, are subject to the general laws of, of nature. And the Scottish Enlightenment uh, began to recognize that after the Reformation. And they made great discoveries in Scotland. They discovered penicillin. Faraday discovered many of the laws of electricity. Um, well, the law is the same way then, right? The, the, juris, the, the spiritual law and the legal side of things is exactly to, the same way. To come, as Blackstone says, the law written, the lex scripta, the Bible, he says. Yeah. yeah, it's the same way, only it's particular revelation. Yes. And it's, it, uh, it's particularly to the people of God. Hmm. Uh, others can read it. Others can obey it. But it's particular in that way. You keep using you keep using that as kind of a touchstone that it's the law discovered, and it reminds me of the proverb that says, you know, "It's the glory of God to conceal a matter; it's the glory of kings to search it out." There it is again. And so that that's kind of the process there yes. that you're talking about. So when we talk about law as a discovery, we're not saying, "Oh, this is just willy-nilly," and "Oh, here we found some, and there we found some." It's 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 when you come to those cases, and I think that's why the Torah is written the way it is. God gives us these principles, thou shalt not murder. Yes. Well, okay, what happens when, you know, it seems to be an accident? Well, then there's, there's a case. He gives us little guideposts with these case examples in the Old Testament. Yes. But it's not a statute book that tries to outline every single possibility ever. That's for us no. to discover over time by applying God's law to particular cases of our own. That's the kings searching it out, so to speak. So that's that's why I think these these dovetail so yes. wonderfully. So the yes. the book is uh, uh, we're going to take a break here and we'll come back okay. and talk about some of these more particular aspects. The book is the excellence of common law, and we of course carried an American vision. You can get it at other places. You have a website, thecommonlawyer.com. Commonlawyer.com. Yes, and uh, we'll we'll talk more about that in the next segments. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Brent Allen Winters. He's a good friend of mine, and he's very inspiring to me in the breadth and depth of his knowledge on this topic, as well as the passion and the time he's put into studying it and writing about it for his whole uh, life. Uh, I would encourage you again to go to our store and check out uh, The Excellence of the Common Law by Brent Allen Winters. Very down-to-earth writing, filled with very rich theological and judicial information uh, that applies to every area of life, not just our history, but very practical things as well today. Also, stay tuned because Brent has also uh, authored four pocket editions. Now, don't be a fool because some of these are 100 or even 200 pages each. Uh, but these pocket editions on topics that come out of these studies, one on the Constitution, one on the militia, one on the jury system, and one on the police. And we'll be doing interviews on these forthcoming as well, so stay tuned. And until that time, I'm Joel McDermott with The American Vision. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth.
The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.